We should just call this the show. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the first place I go to keep my business skills sharp. They offer over 150,000 books on business, finance, planning, and much more. They also have a great selection of fiction that keeps me entertained when I'm just not up for some serious content. I love it because I can buy a book, download it to my iPhone, and listen while running errands or at the gym. Get your free trial at freelancershow.com slash audible. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to freelancershow.com slash CodeSchool. This episode is brought to you by ProXPN. If you're out and about on public Wi-Fi, you never know who might be listening. With ProXPN, you no longer have to worry. ProXPN is a VPN solution which sends all of your traffic over a secure connection to one of their servers around the world. To sign up, go to ProXPN.com and use the promo code TMTCS, short for Teach Me to Code Screencasts, to get 10% off for life. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 123 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Davis. Hello. Reuven Lerner. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, Megan Fox. Hi. Uh, Megan, do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Uh, sure. My name is Megan Fox. I'm not that Megan Fox. I'm the cool one. I am the founder of Glassbottom Games. You might know us from the game Jones on Fire, which has been released on pretty much every mobile device out there now. We're currently working on Hot Tin Roof, which you haven't heard of yet, but you will whenever we release. It's going to be big. <laughs> Very nice. So we brought John to talk about indie game development. Mm-hmm. Now, Jones on Fire is a game that you wrote and you market yourself, right? Correct. I was the developer and the artist, well, the 3D artist on it. I'm not an artist, by the way. It just so happened that since the game was made out of blocks, I could fake it. We had a couple of sound guys, Michael Nielsen and Nathan Madsen. And then we had a 2D artist, Fulmer Kelly, who did the marketing materials. But aside from that, I did everything, including marketing. Now, this is a freelancer show, and, you know, I count what you're talking about having done, you know, writing your own game and marketing it yourself as being freelance, but do you write games for other people, too? Uh, generally speaking, so that happens. It's contract game development. I generally avoid that business because, I mean, I'm sure any other freelancer listening to this knows what happens whenever you take a fixed bid on a uh, project. Invariably, the person who's giving you the work, they change their mind, they increase the amount of work, they deny work that should not have been denied, and suddenly you're six months over budget, but they're not going to pay you more because it's a fixed bid. Anyways, almost all (laughs) game In software? Come on. Yeah. So almost all games, if you're doing contract game development, are done that way. They're almost all fixed bids, which means some people do them and some people scrape together a living on them, but you get what's called golden handcuffs, where you have, even if you think you've gotten finally gotten ahead and you've gotten enough money out of this project to fund your own development or at least have a good weight between, invariably the project always goes just far enough for a budget that you've only barely got enough time to find your next contract and you get rolling on that. And then eventually, inevitably, you hit one of those windows where you can't find a contract in time and your entire studio erupts in flames. And that's just the way it goes. So I personally avoid that. I do development for myself. If I'm in a contract, I generally do it as just me. 
I've done contract PR work, promotional work for uh, actually Sproggywood, which is a release I just helped manage. They brought me on because we want to collaborate on, on the next project anyway, so this was an easy way of doing that on this one, uh, figuring out if we could work well together. I've also done a little bit of contract development, and once upon a time, I did in fact do a contract game development for a fixed bid for the University of Colorado at Boulder. They wanted a game based on Wikimedia, and it was every bit as miserable as I just described. <laughs> Boy, you make it sound like so much fun. Yeah, well, the developing games for yourself is a lot of fun. And so long as you can figure out how to market them, that's, it's a pretty good business. I mean, if I was in AAA doing, you know, big budget Assassin's Creed or whatever, I'd make a lot more money. But you can make a pretty decent living this way, and it's, it's a lot more fun. I'm curious to know, just like, there are a lot of freelancers I've met who do fixed bid projects. I think they're basically out of their minds. Um, <laughs> and, I've, and, and I've learned that over the years. But how is it that an entire industry of games manages to continue surviving with fixed bid projects. Can't people just like get up and revolt? Not really. We don't have any kind of unionization, so there's really no collective bargaining. And the money people invariably have a disproportionate amount of power in the relationships. So almost all of these are done based on effectively fixed bids. Furthermore, they're fixed bids based on milestone payments. So they can not only change their uh, minds and push you past your original bid, they can withhold milestone payments if they don't feel you've made enough progress on the game, which, as any developer knows, once the tires hit the road, you know, you reorganize development. You do whatever needs to be done. Things change. Things get pre-prioritized. But whenever you're stuck in a milestone payment schedule, you can't do that. You have to do exactly what you thought you would do a year ago today. And sometimes that doesn't work out. And then you have long, drawn-out negotiations with publishers to explain why you had to change things. And they're going to dangle, you know, a $400,000 payment over you that your entire studio of you know, 30, 40 people is depending on. And yeah, bad things happen. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Now, that isn't to say that all development in games is done this way. This is how, uh, call it the middle tier of development survives. The middle tier has actually been crunched in the last decade. It used to be a larger, thriving industry where you'd get what are called IP games, which is basically, I have the Ninja Turtles, I have Polly Pocket, I have Kim Possible, I want a game made about this. I'm going to go to a game developer, I'm going to do what's called a request for proposals, or well, RFP, which a bunch of developers you know, send me in a proposal for, I think I can make this game and it'll be like this and here's the brief and it'll cost this much. And then from those, I pick one of those bids and then I give them the contract and then a Polly Pocket or a Kim Possible game is made. That used to be a large portion of the industry. That vanished almost entirely with the advent of mobile games. What happens now is all AAA development is done uh, not on fixed bid. It's done based on subcontracting. So still a top-heavy, prone-to-toppling industry, but way, way less risky. The fixed-bid stuff has moved down to mobile, where... So it still is screwed up, and you can still lose your shirt easily, but at least you're talking about smaller amounts. There for a while, the budgets had gotten insane in the middle tier, and people's livelihoods were on the line for milestone payments, and it was really awful. Mobile is better-ish, but you still get a lot of that fixed-bid stuff. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So let's say that I come and I spend a week, a typical week with Megan Fox. I see what you do and I'm like, man, this is the life. I want to write my own games and, you know, sell them and go on hikes with lots of sunscreen. <laughs> um, what do I need to do in order to get to the point where I can actually do that kind of stuff? 
So this is where normally I would say something like, anything I tell you is wrong, (laughs) because the industry all of us come up in and the way in which we establish ourselves no longer exists by the time we establish ourselves. So what I'll do is I'll tell you what I did, and hopefully from that, someone can draw conclusions or at least thoughts on what they need to do. The gist is I worked in AAA for uh, six years, started with a smaller studio, a startup, moved to LEGO Universe which was done by NetDevil and then Gazillion and then Lego Playwell Studios before the studio collapsed. That's where I cut my teeth and I got into that based on a strong portfolio that I'd made on my own time while I was in university. So I got hired into that. I got laid off there. The severance package happened to be really, 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 really good. So there I was thinking, well, you know, I could go find another job, but there's not much in the area and I'm never going to get another chance like this. So through a combination of severance. I mean, initially I applied for unemployment because I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And, you know, I did the job hunting and there just wasn't much here. But then I realized, yeah, you know, I've got severance here. I can actually do something with this. So between all of that, I managed to eke out enough time that I got a game done. And that was funded, you know, primarily on the uh, severance package. That would be probably on the order of $40,000 that I had and burned. So you need substantial savings if you're going to do this. The way better way of doing it is that a lot of people have used. If you find a job that doesn't kill you and you can go home and still want to work on projects, you just work in the evenings. And you work in the evenings probably on a small mobile game. And you put it out there when it's done. And it's not going to make very much money. So then you make another mobile game and you put it out there. And it's not going to make very much money either. But over time, if you stack enough of these revenue streams, like... Jones on Fire currently makes about $100 a month. If I had 20 Jones on Fires out there, or even 15 or 10 maybe, that's getting really close to actually eking out enough month to month that I could just go independent and survive on just that income. So that's the other way of doing it, which probably much easier than what I did, which is the develop a large savings pool, however you do it, and then burn it. How long, and this is probably not uh, possible to answer necessarily, but how long does it take you to do each game? Because if it takes you, say, two years to do a game then you're not going to have a revenue stream from 10 games anytime soon. But if it takes you a month, then it could totally be doable, I guess. The people that do this... What is it? There's a game currently on mobile. It's called Don't Step on the Meow Tile. I believe it's from... Is it Retro Dreamer? Oh, I'm sorry, dude. If you're listening to this, I'm terrible with names. Still, they have done a series of games... Pretty sure this is the same studio. If not, again, sorry. Happy Pudding Flap, Pudding Jump, Pudding Drop. All of these are simplistic games that have one, you know, central compelling mechanic of the sort that can be made in a couple months. Do two or three. You and an artist, typically. Hopefully, even better if you're an artist and a programmer, but that's going to be a little harder. You can also do contract art, but that gets a little wiggy unless you know exactly what you're asking for. A lot of times if you do contracted art, you'll get a bunch of art that in isolation works. But since you maybe went to three or four different contractors, you're dealing with three or four different styles, and you find that when you put it all together, it kind of doesn't work. But still, however you do it, if you're making a game every two or three months, you can actually stack the revenue that way over a couple of years, and you can get to the point where you go independent. Also, the other cool thing is, as you're stacking mobile games, you're using promotional tools in the previous games to convert that audience onto your new game. And then your new game has its own time and sun to develop its own audience in addition to that. So you're stacking an audience that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So your successes actually get bigger and bigger and bigger. So my game, Jones on Fire, makes $100 a month. It isn't like I'm going to make 15 Jones on Fires and they're all going to make $100 a month and that's how I'm going to do it. Most likely, I make Jones on Fire 2. It makes more like, you know, maybe 300 or $400 a month. And then I make Jones on Fire does skinny dipping and that makes $800 a month. So maybe you only need four or five or six games stacked. But that's still probably the single easiest strategy for people to go for today. Otherwise, so Jones on Fire took eight months, which was way too long. And there were a lot of reasons for that. Mostly it was my first game as a solo studio. And you learn a lot of that process that you didn't realize you needed to learn, but you do. 
future games would go a lot faster if I was going for that. Also, the level of polish was a lot higher than it needed to be for mobile. I actually got a lot of good reviews for that, but still, that's one way... If you go for the higher budget, if you if you go for desktop, you're going to end up in the higher budget space, which, yeah, that's more like one to two years per game, and you really can't do the revenue stacking thing. To play in that space, you just need to be able to work on the game however long it takes. Most people that get their start doing larger games like that, what they do is they spend uh, two to four years, nights, evenings, working on the project, usually with a team of collaborators, and then they release it. And then hopefully, everyone crosses their fingers, that game makes enough in revenue to then pay everyone and do another game. If it doesn't, they all get very upset and maybe wash out of making games entirely. It's a bigger bet, higher risk, bigger payoff, etc. Less sustainable. that answer your question? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and there's one guy I talked with at a conference. I don't, I don't remember all the details and I'm not going to share just for out of respect. I don't know if he was not in iOS, but he was on almost all the other mobile platforms. Like he even built games for, um, Blackberry. And what he said, what he was doing was he would make like a racing game and sell it. And he would make, you know, maybe a dollar a day if that across all of the platforms, but then he would get new art, use the same engine, use basically the, the same game and just reskin it, have a second game. And then maybe he'll do something tweak the engine but keep the art like he was constantly iterating and i don't know if he said he was able to crank out a game a month or a game a week but he had a couple dozen games and he was on multiple platforms and what he said happened like most games made nothing like they weren't selling at all but then there'd be like one hit like you know on google play like this one game would just start selling it would make him 500 bucks a month it was just him based on that like he was actually making enough money that he was moving from you know, a really expensive area to an even more expensive area. And he was doing it full time and loving it. So like, that's like the more extreme version of what you're saying is just like very, very fast iterations, reuse as much as you can and see what kind of works in the market. Yeah. I don't know specifically the developer you're talking about. I know of another one that does that. He does game reskins of, and they're really terrible. There's stuff like uh, Kim Kardashian sprint, and then he'll make another one of Kane West sprint or that kind of thing. Whatever is the cultural meme of the era, he does a really quick, really slapdash game and puts it out there. And yeah, some of them do hit and it makes a lot of money. The risk you run with that is you as a developer get a reputation for making shit games. So when you want to stop making shit games and make a good game, you're going to have a really, 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 really hard time doing that. My understanding is a lot of the developers that do this, they make those shit games under one moniker and they make their good games under another moniker, and they never cross the streams <laughs> just to uh, avoid that. If you look on indie back channels, uh, we have it's a very interconnected, very chatty kind of industry, and a lot of stuff goes on in back mailing lists and that kind of thing. If you look at those, you'll see people that are drilling down and figuring out who does the shit games based on you can develop patterns and look at the uh, referrals that they're using. So some of these people will develop a large following with their shit games, and then they'll try and use that following to drive their better games. But if you look at the games that are being promoted by the shit games, you can get a sense for who is actually behind the curtain. That's less dangerous. No one's going to look at that and go, oh, well, Kim Kardashian Sprint just promoted good game number five, so we're not going to like good game number five anymore. It's, it's just one of those curiosity things. But yeah, that is another strategy you can play. A uh, big advantage of the high, high iteration is you get really good at your craft very quickly. Whenever you're making a game a week, you learn real fast what works and what doesn't for small, sticky mechanics. And if you're focusing on that and really trying to get better at it, you'll 
get to be making really good games within, you know, like a year, six months, depending on how fast you go. People have done this where they've gone from never having made a game in their life to making a game a week, and by game 11 or 12 or 13, they're getting pretty damn compelling. And it's just, they started with nothing, and because they kept doing it over and over and over again so quickly, they got somewhere. It's a good strategy. I see that a lot in fiction writers, because with Amazon and all that, a lot of them Mm -hmm. are trying to crank out volume. And some of the advice given to beginner writers is maybe start off with a pen name and write in a pen name. So if it is crap, if the book is really, really bad, it doesn't taint your real name or the name you want to publish your good work under. But once you crank out, you know, a dozen, two dozen novels in a year, you actually know the craft of writing. And then, you know, you can work on the good stuff and it's actually going to be good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my uh, mom was a writer actually in that space. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. One thing that I'm curious about with the indie game development is how do you market the game once you have it out there? I mean, it sounds like one way to go about it is to write a bunch of games, find out what people want, and then, you know, hopefully you have a reputation that you can sell games on. But, you know, how do you sell that first one? How do you get people to find it? So there are two different approaches here. If you are on desktop, then uh, desktop also console. Basically, if you aren't focusing on mobile, you want to get in touch with Let's Players. They are by far the most important right now. And you want to get in touch with people that run websites like Rock, Paper, Shotgun or... Polygon's really cool, but they're not really one of the ones that covers small developers. They're more of a lifestyle, different kind of story, but they're still one of the notables. Basically, you want to find the big sites, uh, Kotaku, Joystick, Destructoid. You want them to cover your games, and you contact them via email, and you send them promo codes and screenshots and press kits and carefully crafted press emails, and that's the stuff that I've learned and gotten good at, and you'll have to learn yourself or find someone that's good at it. That's one way, and that way is traditional promotion. The middle way, which is important regardless, is social media. You essentially need to become the brand that you're selling. Like me on Twitter, I very consciously, you know, I stay away from really, really offensive jokes and really, really offensive humor because that, I mean, look at what happened to Phil Fish. Phil Fish in person, I'm pretty sure isn't a bad guy. He's just a guy that has kind of an abrasive sense of humor and he likes to go at trolls and that's just kind of who he is. But you take that kind of personality and put it on the internet and now suddenly Phil Fish is this reviled caricature thing that can't even tweet anymore without a billion people telling him how horrible he is. So you have to be really, really careful. But still, the social media and putting yourself out there is just a huge component of getting noticed. That's also how you get the notice of some of the bigger sites You'll start tweeting, you'll start doing Tumblr blogs of your screenshots. There's a bunch of different options. And over time, you'll get retweets and people will follow you and you'll start getting followed by, I'm being followed by, oh man, Ryan, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce your last name. Uh, Ryan Letourneau? Oh man, that's bad. He's a very relevant YouTuber. I'm also being followed by Red Panda Gamer, a bunch of others. Uh, I think I've got a couple of the Rock Paper Shotgun guys following me. Over time, you develop those followings and then things you tweet become news even before you realize that you wanted to release them as news. So it gets easier. So that's kind of the middle way that's important regardless. Then on the right side is the mobile. And mobile is a whole other beast. Sites like Touch Arcade are important. They are critical. You must get your game reviewed on Touch Arcade. But the reason you get it reviewed on Touch Arcade is not because it matters in the least for sales. It does not convert to sales at all. What it does is it gets you noticed by the Apple featuring team or the Google Play featuring team or whatever, and then they give you a featuring. And that featuring is what drives your sales. Without a featuring on mobile, you are sunk, you are disappeared, no one will even find you. It's just the discovery is horrible. Good luck. Not going to happen. Almost never. If you get featured, you got a chance. So there, you've got to court relationships with the press, and you've got to get covered by review sites. 148 apps and Touch Arcade are probably the two most prominent. 
But all it really is for is so that the featuring team will notice you. And there's even a game you've got to play with when you release your game so that it's in the right part of the new releases list so that when the featuring team sits down, they actually notice your game and the giant spew of stuff that's been released. It's very complicated, and all of it's down to optimizing for getting the featuring by the Apple team or getting the featuring by Google Play. And that is kind of it. And then the featuring... It's, it's, re- oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, it's just kind of funny to me to hear you say this because, you know, for years in the world of desktop software... There were companies that were doing the distribution and they had the, the stores or the mail order catalogs and you had to go through them in order to get your applications out to people because otherwise, like, you want to buy software, where are you going to do? You're going to go to the local computer store and if they don't carry what you're interested in, you're just not going to buy it. And we talk about the internet as a world of possibilities and all things are, you know, anyone can be discovered. At the end of the day, it's maybe they're not the distributors, although I guess Apple and Google are, but there still are definite gatekeepers who are deciding whether products are either go or no go, more or less. Kind of. On PC, not really the case. The only real gatekeeper on PC is Steam, a uh, Valve software. Steam is their thing. That is only a gatekeeper because we've, well, I am part of it, but we've created a generation of people that will refuse to buy games unless they can get a Steam key for it for really stupid reasons. And it comes down to just, I really like to have all of my games in the cloud, giant air quotes, (laughs) easily accessible. And Steam is that cloud list that I like all of my games to be in. So it's really stupid, but still, without a Steam key you're kind of screwed. So that used to be a giant gatekeeper for um, PC games, and to get onto Valve required a lot of hustling, a, a lot of good social media presence, a lot of good articles, etc. It's something that most of us were capable of, but if you were lesser known or less willing to put yourself out there or less able because you're just not a people person, it was a big vertical thing. That bar has been lowered substantially. Now it's not really all that hard to get on Steam. Now you have to get noticed on Steam. So you still have to hustle and still have to get noticed and still have to drive sales so that Steam will feature you and you'll get pushed. But it's still not the only way. You can get a, a successful game can be born just by a random YouTuber playing it at the right time in the right way in that video going viral. There's a ton of discovery methods, avenues on PC, PC on desktop that are just awesome. That's even up true on consoles, though to a lesser extent, the stores are, again, the only distributor, and your presence on the store is largely what drives sales, but not to the degree that mobile is. On mobile, there are absolutely gatekeepers, and they are called Google, Apple, and Amazon. And unless you court the right people at those places you cannot succeed on these marketplaces. I mean, you look at uh, successes like Flappy Bird. Technically speaking, you could be the next Flappy Bird, but considering that something like 4,000 games or 10,000 games are released a day, the numerical likelihood that you are going to be the next Flappy Bird is so low that you would probably be better off spending whatever money you spent on development on lottery tickets. Just if you're not going to promote your game and try and do that, you just can't. It's, It's not a numerically useful possibility that you will succeed. So yeah, they're just like that is just a shocking number to hear. It's (laughs) there's there's thousands of games released every single day. Yep. And so to try to get noticed, clearly right, nothing you do personally is going to directly affect it. It's it's a lot of marketing to get out there. But I mean, are the people developing these other games do they recognize the odds against being like against succeeding, or or a lot of these just uh sort of uh I don't know amateur games that they don't care how much they make. Almost all of them are amateur games. By the way, if you're an amateur developer and you're listening, I, I'm not saying amateur like, oh, well, those people, and they're not <laughs> skilled. I, I'm, that, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that their game's being made not for profit, reasons of profit. They're being made because someone wanted to make a game and they made it, and it's out there. A lot of people that release their games that way just want their game on the phone so that whenever they're in a job interview, for instance, they can pass the phone across and go, hey, 
check out this game I made. That can make or break an interview. If you're a designer and you're trying to make waves for yourself, just handing a phone across with your game on it and with a little icon and it's done, that can get you totally around all those awkward, horrible interview questions. Suddenly all the questions become about your game and they're way easier to answer. So it's a great strategy. But yeah, there's a, a bunch of reasons people release games on mobile that have nothing whatsoever to do with profit. So it isn't like all of these people are trying to succeed and it isn't like in practice you're really in competition with most of these people. But because of, and this is really what it's down to, the way Apple has designed their store has terrible discovery. And I honestly couldn't tell you how they could improve it with the volume of games they have. But it just has terrible discovery. The volume is so big and the lists are so bad and so poorly optimized that there's just no way of filtering it. And because of that, the only way through is with the gatekeepers, which you know, is Apple. So you get an Apple featuring and that gives you, and even the Apple featuring, I want to clarify, is not a, like a guaranteed success. It is essentially a lottery ticket. It's a lottery ticket that has a really good chance of payout, but like uh, Jones on Fire got featured. We, it was a weak featuring, but we did get featured. And that was like worth, I think, $1,000, $2,000, maybe 3000 It just wasn't very much. And uh, the Google Play featuring was worth, no, that's right. Apple was worth about 1000 Google Play was worth 3000 And the Amazon free app a day wasn't actually worth all that much, but it got us a ton of eyeballs, so there's value there regardless. But it's not like any of those numbers. Jones on Fire, for instance, has just barely cracked the $10,000 mark. Given that it took eight months to develop, you can imagine that's not profitable. It is a good investment, and it's the only reason I was able to do Hot Tin Roof on Kickstarter. The press presence I had from Jones on Fire is a huge part of why that succeeded. So it's not like the money in Jones on Fire was wasted. I'm actually pretty happy with that. He made $10,000 for a first game released on mobile. That's huge. But uh yeah, so it got featured, well, and I still didn't succeed, quote-unquote. We spend a lot of time on the podcast talking about pricing strategies. I mean, do you really have any flexibility in pricing if you're in the games market, or are you just going to have to be at a dollar or something, or make it free? Again, that depends on the market. If you're not on mobile, there's a lot of flexibility on pricing. In fact, pricing is going up on average. Well, I should say there's two factions. There are the people that don't know how to promote their games and are struggling to get notice, and a lot of them are falling into the death spiral of pressing their games down and down and down because of lack of polish and lack of budget. So there's kind of this lower tier on Steam that's emerging thanks to Greenlight, which is impenetrable, and it's just kind of a mass of stuff, and they're competing based on price. The games that are pricing above that, Hot Ten Roof is not there. Hot Ten Roof is at the 15 tier. Other games are at the $10 tier. Even the $5 tier is sufficiently distinct from this. All of those prices are moving up. You're actually seeing, it's already emerged, a $20 tier, a $25 tier is emerging as games get more and more polished and push the price further and further up. So on PC, it's actually, there's a lot of pricing flexibility and a lot of experimentation being done. There's also alpha funding, which is nowhere near as important as people would like to believe it is. But for those games that fit out the alpha funding model really well, but when I say alpha funding, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Not really. No, no. Okay, then I'll explain. Alpha funding is where you essentially sell an incomplete game. Often you sell the incomplete game for more than you will sell the game when it is released. In exchange, you give players access to the alpha, and they get to see how the game is developed as it continues. There are two main problems with alpha funding. One is that when you do alpha funding and you release your game prominently, when you release your game on Steam Early Access, and it's a early access game, that is your release event. Whatever press you get, that is the release event that matters. You're going to lose something like half of your potential buyers. I'm one of them that you'll always lose because it's early access. I go, ah, it's early access. You know, I think I'll wait until it's finished. I don't want to spoil the game for myself. I'd rather see it when it's done. You lose a lot of people to that. And that's your release event. 
After that, you're just going to get gradual viral improvements. So your monthly uh, patches have to be these big, transformative, huge, genre-busting, media explosion events that are super exciting. And if they're not, you're going to just kind of collapse and peter out into nothing because you don't have... You can't just put a 1.0 on your game someday and go, Oh, it's done! It's released now! Everyone cares, right? Because we've all been playing your game for months or knowing about your game for months and the YouTubers have been doing videos for months. There's no more to push with. You've, you've done the push already. So you have to support your game with those transformative patches. A lot of people can't do that, especially the reason Hot Tin Roof isn't on early access is we're a content-driven single-player once-through game. I'm not going to put a game out there like, the first hour's done, and now come back for the second hour. That would die horribly. You have to be something more like Minecraft, something more like Nuclear Throne, something more like Prison Architect that has these big transformative changes. And even then, you're still not going to have a release event. You're just going to have a lot of strong sales months, and you're going to see how long you can continue that. The other problem with this model is that you tend to not finish the game. I mean, the game is finished, but there's not that sense of and now the game is done and I can move on. It tends to just go as far as the revenue stream will carry it. So if your game is a success in early access or the alpha funding model, you'll hopefully get to finishing the game and maybe get something you call a 1.0 and then, yeah. But generally speaking, you're not going to get that far. The game's going to... Uh, like, I'm a little worried Seven Days to Die is going to fall into this, where their patches are getting less and less exciting and less and less is happening. And I really feel like the game is going to peter out into nothing and disappoint a lot of people. But I don't know if the developers actually care... Well, I mean, they care, but are worried about it because the game was a huge success already. It made huge sales numbers, so I'm pretty sure they're fine and can move on to their next game. But you don't get that sense of having finished this game and it's this product that I can be excited about. Anyways, yeah, alpha funding is one of the ways around this. Uh, It's another of those avenues. I don't remember what actually started that. Hopefully that was a point of closure. (laughs) So how do people actually, because it sounds like you write a game, if you get lucky, then you make a whole lot of money on it. Otherwise, you know, how do you actually make a living writing games? Mobile, in particular, is what you're describing is called a hits-driven industry. AAA is infamous for this. The reason AAA games, like when you saw the latest Tomb Raider, they'd only made $3 million and they were seeing it as a financial failure, whatever the actual press release was. The reason you see these absurd stories is because AAA games require 10 times return on their investment to be considered a success. The reason that happens is because hits-driven model means for every 10 games, one will be a success and nine will be failures. So the only way to get around that is with a huge single success. Mobile is essentially the same thing. Almost all of your mobile games will be huge failures, and you'll eventually get the hit that actually keeps you alive and gets you to the next hit. And a lot of games, so the mega hits like uh, Dragon Veil, for instance, or Angry Birds, most of the time those studios only get the one big hit, and then they just kind of ride that success until it dies, and eventually they collapse because there's just nowhere to go, which is why you see a lot of IPO events and that kind of thing where you can see where the uh, founders escape before it falls into its death spiral. A lot of them have gotten really good at that. (laughs) So that's um, mobile. Mobile is very hits-driven, and even ignoring the Angry Birds-sized successes, you tend to get one game which funds you for four years, and then hopefully somewhere in there you have another big success, and that funds you. The way you can kind of hedge against that is by lots of smaller games, all of which contributing to a single larger revenue stream, which is that whole before you jump into the space, you have 10 or 20 games out there, all making at least some money. If you've got at least some money, like my burn rate's like 1500 a month, which is super low for people in the U.S. in general, quite low. 
it's not all that hard to stack enough successes for me to get at least close to that burn rate. And if even if I'm like halfway there, suddenly any money I've got saved up lasts so much longer. That's the way you hedge against it in the mobile space. In desktop space, it's a little more risky. Like Hot Tin Roof, I've got a lot of money tied up in it. And if Hot Tin Roof is a failure, that could theoretically flatten my entire studio. So I just have to make sure it's not a failure. The way I do that is by focusing on marketing, focusing on awareness, focusing on polish, so that whenever I release the game, I will know it is a good game. That's one of the few things you can control. Good game does not mean success. A visible good game generally means success. So, so long as you focus on both making the game as good as you possibly can, and that honestly is mostly down to how much money you scrape together, we've had to do some tricks to make sure that we have enough budget to actually make the game what it should be, rather than a lot of games fail not because the developers, you know, hated the game and are terrible at it. It's because they simply ran out of money and they had to make hard decisions. And the result was a game that wasn't as good as it could have been. No game's going to be perfect, and that's the enemy of a good game is the perfect game, and you'll waste your money the other way trying to make it perfect, and then eventually it'll blow out of control. Retrograde is, by the way, an example of this. Um, Matt Gilgenbach is an awesome guy, and I've actually now met him, and he's really kind of cool. But uh, on Retrograde, he kind of went into this development hole and made it super polished, super perfect. It is probably the most perfect game you will ever play. But because of that, they spent four years on it and tons of budget. So when they finally released the game, it uh, stood just no chance of succeeding because the bar for its success was so high. Reasonable sales were never going to get that. So you have to balance those two. But uh, so long as the game is polished, as call it reasonably polished, as polished as it should be, and visible, which is another thing you can relatively control so long as you're making a concerted effort to get notice. So long as you get both of those things, that's the way you control risk in PC space. The whole release thousands and thousands of games and they're tiny and they all stack up, that doesn't work in desktop at all. That only works in mobile. And another way you can do it is essentially a hybrid studio where you do mobile games as well, mobile-focused games as well as desktop-focused games. And then your mobile-focused games are these smaller, tiny things that don't really go to PC, but they do develop that kind of low-level income they also create an audience on mobile so that whenever you release your larger desktop games and then eventually you a port of them to mobile, they stand a chance of succeeding at the level you want them to rather than, without a captive audience, releasing large pre- premium quote-unquote games uh, to mobile is uh, really hard. But if you've got the audience that you can kind of convert to them, it becomes an easier thing to actually make them a success. So if you've got that kind of both sides playing thing, that's another way of controlling the risk on both sides, making big bets and small bets. But obviously that requires having the budget to make both big bets and small bets. So in striking the balance between polish and marketing, I'm wondering how much work do you put into one versus the other? Uh, It's really hard to (laughs) put a clean line between the two. In general, I probably spend at least one to two hours on social media every single day just interacting with people, talking about things that I'm doing in development. You need to share screenshots weekly. A screenshot Saturday is extremely important. Depending on who you are, kind of what you go for as far as who you are on Twitter, commenting on the development drama of the day is one way of staying visible. Making uh, One of the things I do is just discuss marketing because it's something I'm relatively good at and others aren't. So I try and cover things that I'm seeing other people are doing wrong or doing right and explaining how this is working and why this isn't working and what they could do differently. And yet, I develop conversations based on that. That's another angle you can pick. But still, you need some amount of social media presence a day. And that's just, you've got to build it into your schedule and it's super hard and that's just part of it. As far as how much of that and how much of polish... You just do as much of both as you can, and you hope you're making enough. 
So one other question I have regarding this is what kinds of things contribute to polish? I think we talked a little bit about, you know, having a high quality game, you know, or high enough quality game. But does that just boil down to artwork and music or am I oversimplifying it? That is oversimplifying it. So make sure this is in the links. There's a video called Juice It or Lose It. This is a video done by, I believe it was Vlambeer, or Vlambeer might have done a different video that's essentially the same thing. Might have been students. The gist is juice. Uh, the concept of juice is the concept of feedback from the game that gives you the sense the game is cool and interactive. It's stuff like screen shake and good audio and music that's done properly and screen flashes and really compelling. Rather than just moving the character, you bounce the character a little bit. Rather than just moving the legs, you give them some squash and stretch. All of these little contributing things that all together add up to what you call juice. Juice is a huge part of Parlish. I can give an example from Hot Tin Roof specifically. When we pull up the journal, the journal is the both the options screen as well as the uh, clue system. When you pull up the journal, we could just do a hard snap to there's a picture of a journal open. We don't do that. The journal actually swings up from the bottom, and then the top cover swings back, and it's this nice non-linear lerp. It kind of feels physical and has this hit to it. That whole process was something we spent a lot of time on. Or when you go to reload the revolver, we could have just shown a revolver screen and disconnected slots that you put bullets into and made it all very generic and functional. Rather than doing that, when you pull up the revolver, it actually snaps open, and there's this nice twist to it. And when you change the cylinder, it actually, you're loading actual bullets into the cylinder and it's a very kinesthetic feeling. We've spent a lot of time on that kinesthetic feeling of our UI because that's a huge component of polish. It's also graphics. It's also basic editing. I mean, don't have typos in your dialogue, please. That's horrible. <laughs> it's also sound. It's also just uh, gameplay, uh, making sure the mechanics are good. Jumping should feel satisfying. It should feel engaging. It should feel, ah, I just jumped. Jumping up and down should be something people are giggling at or feeling satisfied by. All of that contributes to polish, and all of that mostly comes from having a time at the end of your development where everything is complete, but you know it's not quite done, and you don't know why it's not quite done. That's where most of the polish comes from, and that last couple months is the difference between a good game and a great game. And that last couple months is invariably what gets cut whenever you're just that little bit low on budget. So, yeah. So when I was talking earlier about, you know, whenever you've got not enough money, that cuts corners and results and not such a good game, that is specifically what I mean. If you don't have that last few months to just sit there and make the game uh, incrementally better based on little touchy-feely things that are individually irrelevant but altogether add up to a sense of completeness, that's most of what polish is. So I'm, I'm curious about that. Like, I mean, when we sometimes talk about SaaS products or other sorts of products, we talk about how people should go out and talk to their clients and, and find out about the market and everything. Do you do that with a game or do you just say, you know, I think it would be really cool if we had such and such a kind of game. And then you sort of build it almost for yourself because you, you know that you're going to enjoy it. And it's like, do you, who do you test it with? Who do you survey? And then how do you check it after it's almost out, like in beta? So the answer to that is yes. <laughs> you do all of those things. One of the primary components of games that are failures that fail to hit a market is that they are games that the developer assumed other people would enjoy. So they make them, and they make the perfect game for themselves. But as it turns out, that's not the perfect game for anyone but themselves, and it's a failure. That's a problem. But it's also a problem if you don't enjoy the game you're making. If you are going down a checklist of things that you think would be fun for other people, the game's not going to be compelling. It's not going to come through. That process is a lot... So again, going back to IP games... uh you know, making uh, Kim Possible. Kim Possible, uh, this is a game on the PS2, 
should have been a terrible game because no one gives a crap about making a Kim Possible game. I liked Kim Possible as a teenager. I thought she was awesome. Even I wouldn't give a crap about making a Kim Possible game. I mean, th- this villain and that villain, and there's the thing with the hat and the naked rat, and I, it just doesn't matter to me. So what they did is they didn't make a Kim Possible game. They made a kick-ass platformer, really engaging platformer that I, as a developer, would have loved to play, and then it happened to be Kim Possible. That same thing is how you'd make a good game today, Whenever, even if it's your own concept. You find those things in the game that you really, really enjoy, and you make them as good as you possibly can be. But while you're doing that, you can't lose sight of making a game that other people actually enjoy, too. The way you bridge that gap is generally with playtesting. Playtesting is critical. It has to be done in all phases of development, and it needs to be done with people that are not your best friends. It needs to be someone that can tell you this is a piece of shit, and you should be ashamed for making it. You're a bastard. If you're not making those games giving the game to those people, you're going to miss that feedback. And the way you develop that is with, again, social media, putting call out for testers. Generally speaking, you'll get a lot of feedback. Kickstarter is one way of doing this. You get a captive audience that is more engaged with your game than is strictly logical necessary, necessarily, but they're willing to try the game even when it's early and they'll give you feedback. And because they're so engaged, they're probably going to give you good feedback. Like, I really hate this, but I want to like it. And here's 13 pages on why it's wrong. And you're going to cringe and then you're going to read that whole thing. And you're probably not going to react to that feedback point to point. Like if they say the jump should be twice as high, that is not useful feedback. The feedback you take <laughs> from that is... They don't like the jump as it is. It is not satisfying. What can I do to make it satisfying? Sometimes that's as simple as changing the camera movement or changing the camera position while they're jumping. Sometimes that's sound. Sometimes that's animation. But you pull out those bits of feedback from playtesting all through your game, and you use those to inform the design. You can't just start with a design and say, this is going to be the perfect game, and I'm going to make the perfect game. And if people test it and they don't like it, well, it's a piece. They're, they're stupid. You can't do that. You have to make sure the game is flexible. You need to keep your uh, voice as a creator, and you can't just make the game that everyone thinks they want because they don't really know what they want. They just know what they don't want. Use all of that. So like I said, yes is the answer. You do all of that. And then you arrive at a game that is hopefully profitable and successful and fun and scores well on Metacritic. Can you actually get any feedback before you have a game written? Uh... Or is that kind of hard to get? So with a storyboard or general idea or... This is one of those points of contention that a lot of designers will say what I'm going to say is bullshit. My personal stance as a designer is that you don't start with a storyboard. No one gives a crap about the story you're writing. You're not selling a story. You're selling a game. What you start with is a prototype, and that prototype is just a box, and it's a box running on some other boxes. And you make that box do the things that the box is going to need to do for the, whatever the core loop of your game is. And you don't leave the box phase until you're starting to get a sense for what the game is actually going to be. Whenever I started Top 10 Roof, I was doing a game a month, a onegameamonth.com, which is a great program, by the way, for any of you that are trying to find an excuse to get yourself into games but don't quite know where to start and maybe aren't up to making a game a week. Go for one game a month. It is a really, 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 really good supporting community. But point is, one of those I did was right after... We finished Jones on Fire. I don't really know what I'm making at this point, but I just played a receiver. And at that point, receiver was just an automatic uh, pistol. Uh, It was a 1911, a model after 1911. I thought it'd be cool to make a revolver that was similarly kinesthetic, that had that sense of presence as a gun. So I started by making revolver physics. And then for one of my one game of months, I had a revolver that was data simulated, a revolver, but had no feedback that it was a revolver and no way to reload it. It was totally pointless. But I had the revolver, and it felt and sounded like a revolver. So I figured, yeah, well, you know, let's, maybe let's put a fedora in there. 
So I put the fedora in there, and I put some moody music in, and suddenly, and then I added a uh, light that casts strong shadows. And now suddenly I'm making a noir game, and it's a noir game that's... This one was particularly fatalistic. It was just this little demo where you you shot a dude or didn't shoot a dude, and then that was the end, and it was very simplistic. But that's where the game started. But I started with that playable that feel, the feel of what the game was going to be. The fact that it was Emma Jones' game, the fact that Frankie was your sidekick, the fact that it was a murder mystery, all of that spun out of the initial concept for what the game was that had that... At my last project, we called it the Red Thread, this central narrative or feel that connects the whole game. Once I'd established the start of that Red Thread, I could start to stick other stuff onto it, and I gradually figured out the game I was making. But you don't just sit down and say, I'm going to make a noir game, and then hand someone a storyboard and say, does this seem compelling? You start with game mechanics and modeling and something that's playable. And you get a sense for, is this fun or not, as early as possible. And you keep iterating on that until it is fun. And once you've got to that point, and you've got some central mechanic, whatever it is, and the way you find these mechanics is by doing a ton of small, simple games. So that mobile make-a-thousand-games thing, really good strategy for finding some compelling mechanics. Once you've got those, you start sticking the mechanics together in ways in your mind and thinking, okay, I've got the revolver, and I've got the fedora, and I've got this cool lighting that I can do, and I've got the dialogue that people are responding to. What happens if I put all of those into a bag and shake it around? And that's where you start getting the design, and that's where you start building everything out. But you're still getting feedback on the playables. Because again, this is something you need to drill into your head as a game designer. You are not a writer. I mean, I am a writer, but you're not selling a book. You're not selling a story. You're not selling a character. You're not selling cinematic design. You're not selling uh, a movie. You're selling a game. So you have to start with the game, and that's what you get feedback on. Everything else is only in service to the game being whatever the game is going to be. Even something like uh, Gone Home. Gone Home, by the way, if you're not aware, is a first-person adventure game with no combat or death of any kind. It is simply exploring a house. You might be under the mistaken impression that that means you're selling the story of exploring the house. No. What you are selling with, if you make a Gone Home game is the interaction, the kinesthetic feeling of being present in the house and exploring the house and the satisfying interactions with the things you find in the house. That's the game. Everything else is only in support of that central, what the player is actually doing. When you have a disconnect between what the player is doing and what the story is trying to tell you, it is called, giant air quotes, ludonarrative dissonance. If you say this word outside of game theory groups, you're probably going to get slapped. Very few people are willing to explain this. But ludonarrative dissonance is when there is a disconnect between what the player is doing mechanically, gameplay-wise, and what the story says you're doing. The best example I can give of ludonarrative dissonance is press X to cut off his head. So you press X, and then there's a giant cinematic thing of the Kratos ripping the head off and shedding down his neck, and then he pokes the eye out. Press Y to poke eye. It's stupid. And all it is is this really bare, simplistic connection between some wanting an excuse to have this huge, expansive cinematic, but, oh wait, we're not making a movie, we, we, we can't just have this play out, what can the player be doing? I know, they'll press a button! It, that's, so that's what happens whenever you don't pay attention to ludonarrative dissonance. You get that. So yeah, focus on what the player is doing. Whatever you're writing needs to be in some way related to what the player is doing and play back into it in some way. And that doesn't mean that it has to involve a sword, or that it has to involve... Like, for instance, we have a revolver. The game is focused heavily, hot tin roof, around the interactions with a revolver. You can't shoot people. There is literally not a single thing in the game you can kill. We're not even sure if people can shoot you yet. All of our threats right now are um, environmental or ephemeral in some way. Things like fire pits, or 
having a rock dropped on you, more disconnected than, you know, some dude shooting you. This is an intentional decision because we wanted to make a statement about having a satisfying mechanic that didn't involve killing people, since it's kind of this lazy thing that a lot of games do. But anyways, all that aside, having a satisfying mechanic doesn't mean a mechanic you've seen in another game. It doesn't mean that. It just means that the you focus on making the game itself satisfying to play, and that the act of playing it should be satisfying even before you hang all of your narrative dressing on it. And whatever narrative dressing you hang onto it should support the game in some way. Gone home, I don't want to give any spoilers, and I won't, but the act of exploring the house, and the way they present the house, and what you're doing in the house, and the way a room's state when you enter it is different from the room's state whenever you leave it, all of this contributes in a way, to the plot being told, the story being told. The two come together really well. There's a sense of mystery and exploration and discovery that is supported by the game itself, as well as what you're doing with the story. Yeah, you focus on the game first, and everything else is secondary. Yeah. Megan, I have to ask this, although I think the answer is pretty obvious from the way you're talking. So we sometimes talk about how... You know, you go to be a freelancer because you love, let's say, a freelance programmer because you love programming. And then you discover a lot of it is drudgery. And then it's not, you know, it's it's fun, certainly, and you're enjoying it. But a lot of your time is taken up and you're not necessarily enjoying it as much as you would have thought. You sound like you really, really love what you do. Yes. Yes, I do. One of the most surprising things about all of this is three years ago, if you'd asked me if I wanted to be a marketer, I would have laughed in your face just flat out. But it turns out I'm actually really good at it. (laughs) which is really good because that's a critical skill set in the space. So not only do I love the act of making games, I love what games are. I love the connection you can develop with your audience. So games for me have always been important. I came to grips with sexuality as a kid, thanks largely to games like Ultima 7. Ultima 7 has no themes of sexuality, by the way. You really don't need to try and figure out why (laughs) playing as Spark and shooting, he had a... uh, this really awful slingshot which is weapon, but the first thing you did was gave him a sword. I'm not saying that there are themes of sexuality in the game at all, but a lot of things I was going through at that point, the game gave me this uh, virtual world within which to explore these things. Uh, for instance, that was one of the first games where you could actually be a female character. The female character is responded to differently than the male character. In the second Ultima 7, which was uh, Servant's Isle, there was actually a lesbian relationship depending on what gender your character was, which was kind of cool. All of that stuff was how I connect with games, and that's part of why it's so important to me. So as a game developer now, the idea that I can create this space for people to explore themselves, to figure out who they are as people, and to uh, inform them, to uh, inspire them, that's so cool! And that's what I'm doing daily now, since this is actually my business. So yeah, I enjoy games, I love the programming of them, I actually kind of enjoy even the marketing of them, developing, you know, getting to go on talks like this, or developing connections with media people who have this whole other perspective on the space that I can learn from. Talking to YouTubers is really cool, since their perspective on space is still different from anyone else in media, since they're professional game players in a very literal sense, they're kind of, whenever a kid wants to be a game developer when they grow up and they're six, YouTubers are kind of literally what they're thinking of in their brain. And that's awesome. But yes, I love everything about it. I'm with Reuven here. I really love the passion and (laughs) the excitement here. It's just, it's fun. And yeah, it makes me want to go out and try and build a game. You should. Everyone should make a game. So are there things about being in the indie game development field that we haven't asked about, maybe because we, we didn't know to ask or that people don't really think about when they're looking at it? Oh, let me think about that. One of the downsides of indie games is you do get a... Uh, I mean, there's obviously politicking involved, and there's some weird factions that set up. 
so again, I've kind of touched on this with being on Twitter. You can't be an asshole on Twitter. You just can't. And that's kind of sad because a lot of people are well-meaning assholes and they're just kind of jabbing at people because it's fun. And if you're in person, they do it with a smirk and you realize they're having fun and they respond in kind and, and it's fine. It's just, this is how I know a couple of people like this. I've met them at PAX. They're cool people. But if you do that on Twitter, that's not how it comes across. Text loses that subtext. You don't see them smirking when they say it. And then someone responds not in kind and they get rude. And then if you're the kind of person that can't take that and, you know, apologize or say, oh, I'm sorry, that was what I meant or, oh, I'm sorry, you're correct. That was incorrect. I shouldn't have said that. If you're the kind of person that gets angry and responds back angry, you turn into a Phil Fish effigy and that's just bad. And it's so easy to step into that. And so many people do. That's one of the downsides of indie. The criticality of Twitter, the criticality of being a public persona when most people aren't well equipped to be a public persona. Most people can over time, but maybe you dive into social media too early and you're not prepared for it and you make an ass of yourself and that follows you forever. That's one of the downsides. Another one is there is a kind of in-crowd sense and an out-crowd sense. Like, right, for instance, Indie Megabooth is a great example of this. Indie Megabooth is this uh, event that is now at most of the game conventions. It started at PAX. The idea was, let's take a space on the main show floor. Normally, it would be like an EA or a Microsoft or a whatever. But let's take it and divide it amongst indies. And then we'll be on the main show floor with all the other guys, but we'll be doing cool indie stuff, and let's see what happens. And it worked really well. You get all of these smaller games and smaller spaces competing head-to-head with these huge studios, and it turns out that that's the most exciting space in the entire show. And it's been that way for years. Well, a couple years now. But as it's grown, it's, it's harder to get into. I, for instance, have just enough social connections and things that I can still get in there. A lot of people are struggling, and they can't. So there's this... Uh, Indie was initially founded on inclusiveness. But as it becomes more popular and more people are in the space, it becomes more and more difficult to be truly inclusive. And you start getting a lot of people that find they can't hurdle this. For instance, even though Steam, they've lowered the bar substantially, there is still a bar to entry. A lot of people can't hurdle that bar. Why they can't do it is down to maybe they're not very good at marketing, maybe they're not very good at social media, maybe they're not very good at putting themselves out there. Maybe they don't want to be good at these things. Maybe they just want to make a good game. I guess that's really the focus of all of this. There are people that want to get good at the things that are required of being a prominent indie developer, and then there are people that just want to make good games, and those they expect those good games to be promotional in and of themselves. And increasingly, that's not the way it is. And I don't know if this is a bad or a good thing, because if you can actually hurdle the admittedly relatively low hurdle, you'll find that the industry is great, and that there's a ton of avenues to try, and that it's great. But that hurdle, I don't think, was as much of there before. And a lot of it's stuff like Minecraft, where people are seeing this and going, ah, I can make a living at this. So maybe people that wouldn't have tried to hurdle it before are trying to get in there now because they want to make a living at it. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's just that this was always here, but as the industry has grown, or as indie has grown, more and more people that can't make the hurdle have appeared in the space. But whatever it is, that's the other downside. And I don't know if there's really a point in here. Just realize that... Yes, it is an open, accepting, interactive space. There's a lot of cool people there, but it's not perfectly open. It's not perfectly accessible. There is a bare minimum of whatever push that you have to be able to give your product to actually get into that space. And if you can't make that, a lot of people are going to end up bitter. So you've got to be aware of that. And you've got to think about whether or not you can be a person to push it across or if you want to be a person to push it across. Maybe you're fine just being in one of the indie niches. There's a ton of them, and they're not bad. 
but it's really hard to make a living in one of the niches that can't quite get that wider indie recognition. So that's another of those things that a lot of people don't realize about it that's an important component to realize before just jumping in headfirst. And then finally, (laughs) this is the big one, I don't know what people think of my income levels. Maybe they assume that since I've been here for three years that I'm like making tons of money. I'm not. I'm barely scraping by and that's true of most indies. And that's just kind of something you have to accept, especially if you have kids. It gets super hard to actually make enough money to survive. You have to be willing to probably for two or three years, essentially scrape by and almost nothing or burn savings before you get that, you know, hit that can actually propel you into the wider space. And often it's not even a hit. It's just a relatively decent success that finally lets you scrape by a little bit longer. Yeah. And that those are the main things that maybe aren't obvious. Okay. So one more question, and that is that uh, it seems like a lot of the folks that you talked about, you know them by a handle of some kind as opposed to an actual name. I don't know if you know their names or not, but is that kind of the way that people talk about each other in the gaming community? Maybe. Well, like uh, Ryan, again, sorry, Ryan, I don't hear your last name. Ryan, his last name, he is Northern Lion. Red Panda Gamer, sorry, dude, I just flat out don't know your name. I'm terrible with names. I think of him as Red Panda Gamer because that's what he is, and you go to YouTube, and that's who he is. Uh, Northern Lion, you go to YouTube, that's who he is. I don't know if everyone else thinks of them this way. I think of them that way because I'm terrible with names. That's just flat out. I'm just so bad with names. In general, I think most people actually do remember names because it's close enough that you remember people pretty well. Mm-hmm. But uh handles are not uncommon. Uh, for instance, Whitaker Trebella, I think of him as W. Trebella because that's his handle. Ian uh, is the one of the developers of Nimblebit. I always think of him as Ian, and almost always, most people refer to him as Ian because that's what his handle is everywhere. So it kind of goes back and forth. Depends on the person. Okay. You guys have any other questions? Uh, no, I think we covered a lot. All right. Well, if people want to get started or they want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? You can email me at megan at glassbottomgames.com. By far, the easiest way to get a hold of me is to tweet at me at glassbottommeg. All right. Uh, one other question that just occurred to me. Are most game developers hardcore gamers? Hard question. Most indie developers are, but hardcore gamer does not necessarily mean AAA gamer. A lot of them mm-hmm. hate AAA games and just play a lot of retro games. But yes, almost all indie developers are hardcore gamers of some kind. If you go into the AAA space, you actually start to find a lot of production staff and uh, some programmers and some even some designers, which is sad, that don't play games. They don't play modern games, that haven't played any games of the type that they're making. And... I think it's a really bad idea and that it results in poor, soulless games, which, if you look at some AAA games, kind of makes sense. But, uh, yeah, it, it kind of runs the gamut depending on who you're talking about. And people have different arguments as to how much that matters. One of the places where it's actually a good thing that this is the case is in games just kind of across the board. We have a problem where we only tell so many stories, and those stories are based mostly on who makes the games. People played WoW, so now they want to make WoW. People get into the industry, like I got into the industry because I played Ultima 7 and I loved the game. So now I'm kind of thinking in terms of RPGs and RPG mechanics and dialogue and that kind of thing. If you bring in an artist who got into the industry because they really like Impressionism, and now they want to make games, but they're really focused on selling what they love about Impressionism and making that something that other people experience. Or if you get narrative designers coming in that have a totally different experience in the background, those voices are super critical if we want to broaden the message we're communicating. The best example I can give of this is, is it Hidden Path Entertainment? I think so. They made The Path, they made the game about the old lady walking through the graveyard, they made the game about being a deer walking through a forest, and they're currently working on 
a game that I couldn't even describe that's kind of like this tunnel with mouths coming at you and it has heavy themes of sexuality. They're one of those groups that has um, experience that has nothing to do with games. And they tell radically different stories because of it. Another of them is Anaanthropy. Dysphoria is a fantastic game that is incredibly lo-fi, and it explains her experience as a transgendered woman and what she went through to get to where she is today, what she goes through every day. It, again, so these different voices, just because someone doesn't play games doesn't necessarily mean they're not going to contribute well to the story or to, to the game you're making. But it is important to have key members of your staff that have some idea of what you're making if you want whatever you make to be intelligible as a game. It's really important that everyone be a core gamer if you're making a genre game. Like if you're setting out to make a Zelda, if you're setting out to make a WoW, if you're setting out to make a third-person action RPG, for Pete's sake, everyone needs to have played a third-person action RPG. But in indie space especially, you're not setting out to make a genre game, so that becomes less important. But ironically, indie has a stronger contingent of hardcore gamers than AAA probably has. So it's kind of reversed as to what the developing types should be. But yeah, overly long-winded answer, but yes. Still interesting. All right. Well, uh, thanks for coming on the show. We're going to go ahead and do the picks now. Eric, do you want to start us off with the picks? Sure. So I heard this a couple months ago, but it's if you have to make a decision about something, like a lot of recommendations say, like, do a pro con list. And I guess Benjamin Franklin actually had, he like recommended it to a friend in a letter. And it's a different way of doing a pro con list. And it's kind of interesting because it's in a way it's like where you kind of give different weights to different items based on how important they are. But his way of doing it is actually really simple and you don't actually need Excel to do it. Obviously he didn't have Excel. So I found a PDF that's actually of the letter. And then the person who posted it has like some details about like the key things, why this is easier to do and better to do than a straight, normal pro con list. Oh, very interesting. Ruben, what are your picks? So I've got two picks for today. The first one I was reminded uh, with Megan talking about things, about this game that I actually had on my phone a few years ago. I think it might even be recommended on Ruby Rogues called Game Dev Story, which is like a little simulation game that you're running your own little indie game. I guess not indie game, like you're running your own little game company. And I found it to be incredibly addictive for, I don't know, probably about a month or so that I played it. So that's a fun one if you don't actually want to develop games, but you do want to play them, and you do want to pretend that you could actually succeed in that industry, that might be a fun game to play. And the other thing is, um, I mean, as listeners know, I live in Israel, and we've been having all sorts of, uh, shall we say, fun and excitement over the last week or so. It's and raining. What? It's raining, yes. <laughs> it's raining rockets. So really, like, one of the heroes in the country is this thing called Iron Dome. And regardless of politics, regardless of your interest in the Middle East or anything... If you are an engineer, this has got to be one of the coolest technologies I have ever, ever seen or heard about in my life. So it's definitely worth reading about, seeing what they do and how they got it to work together. The fact that this works at all is, as far as I'm concerned, a minor miracle. And the fact that it's actually saving lots of lives is all the better. Anyway, those are my uh, picks for this week. Very cool. I'm going to go ahead and pick a few uh, games that I enjoy on my iPhone. So the first one is Dragon Veil. I think Megan mentioned it at some point during our conversation today. I've also enjoyed quite a bit the, forget what it's called, Candy Crush type games. So I like Candy Crush and Pet Rescue, or two that I play off and on. And then I've really been enjoying this one called BH Legacy, which is kind of like a Zelda type game. And you tap around the screen to move, and then you tap on enemies to attack them and stuff like that. I don't even know how many hours I've spent playing this thing on my iPhone, of all things which is really making me want to get an iPad that's uh, newer than the one I have. So yeah, the Battleheart Legacy one is by uh, Mika Mobile, and I'll put links to all of those in the show notes. But yeah, these are just cool games. 
Megan, what are your picks? So, my game pick is Broforce, which is just an absurd pastiche of <laughs> 80s culture and 80s and 90s action movies. I don't even want to go into it. It's another. It's an early access game, like I was mentioning earlier, and it's probably one of the early access games that's actually going to come to a satisfying conclusion. It's absurd, and it's funny, and it's great. And then to kind of offset the broness of off of mentioning Broforce, I would also like to recommend the poetry of William Blake, specifically Auguries of Innocence, in the spirit of finding inspiration from things that have nothing to do with games. Very cool. Well, thanks for coming on and talking to us about game development. It's always fun to kind of get a different angle on what we do and, you know, see some opportunities there to do something interesting. Well, thanks for having me. All right. And for our listeners, we are reading To Sell as Human by Daniel Pink. So uh, go pick up the book and read it. We'll be talking to Daniel in a few weeks. And other than that, we'll catch you next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash form. 